Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Chaz Thorne is partner with One Page Plans, a company that helps leaders and teams get their strategic plan on one page in just two days. Through One Page Plan, Chad has worked with nonprofits like Habitat for Humanity, United Way, Right to Play, as well as corporations like Stantec. Western Foods, Sun Life, and GFL Environmental. Before One Page Plans, he co-founded The Give Agency, an idea hackathon where top thinkers in advertising, marketing, PR, and strategy united to help nonprofits free of charge. He also founded and led Standing Eight Productions, where he produced films from 2 to 10 million range starring A-list celebrities like Rose Byrne, Danny Glover, Jay Bruchel to a critical acclaim. Jazz is guided by the belief that organizations can and should make better decisions faster. While management warns against top-down decision-making, you still need to get things done, and many leaders struggle with balancing collaboration and speed. He firmly believes that you have to have both. Jazz, welcome to the One Away Show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, thank you for being here. Uh, you know, Chaz, uh, really fascinating background that you have. I think there's going to be a great conversation today. You know, what would you say your One Away moment was or is i was 21 22 years old and uh had finished my my training as a uh, classical actor of all things and was living in toronto ontario canada which was sort of the the center of that that industry in in canada and i had written um a full-length stage play in the time that I was in school studying as an actor. And it was, it was about the neighborhood that I grew up in and that my, my family was from in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And it was set in, um, it was set just post world war two. And it was something I was really proud of and had, had worked on for several years. And I'd been sending it around to a bunch of different theater companies looking for someone to produce it. And I either got no responses at all, uh, or I got no's. And I decided, all right, well, if I think that this is worthwhile, if I think this is a good piece of work, then I should take on the work and the responsibility of getting it made. And I founded my first company, uh, which was a theater company called Jack in the Black Theater in Toronto, and uh, took that on uh, along with uh, the help of an extremely amazing mentor um, who produced it with me and and also uh, directed the play named Brian Richmond. And that really was the start of me sort of taking responsibility for my own path in terms of being an entrepreneur, never looking to someone else to deign either me or my work as worthwhile. Um, but taking that on myself in terms of putting things out into the world. 
That's great. And what a story of you just leaning into yourself and, and taking charge. And, you know, what I, what, when you were talking, I mean, something that I'm, I'm really curious about for you, Chaz, is what was it about acting that really drew you in that said, you know, I feel alive in, 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 in my own element when I am acting and, and made you really kind of follow that calling? Acting for me was a, a really tangible way for me to express all of the the different me's that I felt existed in a way through the form of character. I mean, when I think about even when I was a little kid, I I wish that I wish that my parents had recordings of me playing. Uh, when I was a kid, because when I think back on them, uh, and you know, when I had all of my like action figures strewn out across my, my bedroom floor and all of the, the stories that I would make up and the characters that I would make up and act out what were essentially to me, these like little, these little movies on my bedroom floor. So the, the first form that that took for me and I, I started, I started working professionally as an actor when I was 15, um, was just loving telling stories. I really relate and connect to just the authentic expression or, or sharing of self and maybe the needs of the things that you, um, wanted to be shared, uh, through the form of a character, Maybe a deeper question, if you don't mind me going here, I could be completely off base, but I just read a book called Man Enough by Justin Baldoni, and um, he talks a lot about in the book about how acting, in a sense, was a shield for him um, from some of the things that he was growing up with in his life. And um, I'm just curious for you if if acting was, uh, well, it was an authentic representation of who you were, was it a shield or maybe a piece of armor in a way for you to escape from, from anything as a kid or growing up? I've seen, I've seen Baldoni's Ted talk on that subject. Um, and I thought it was really fabulous. I believe he's the, um, he's best known for, uh, the character he played on Jane, the Virgin, which is, a is a favorite in, in my household. <laughs> yeah. Um, He's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful show. I think in terms of acting for me, it's a really interesting question, mostly because I haven't really thought of it in that context. But when I, when I think back to it, I certainly did struggle a lot with what it meant to be male as a young kid, a male child specifically, growing up in the late seventies, early eighties. And I particularly, uh, so I happen to uh, sort of a unique quirk of my upbringing is that even though my parents were both university educated and we were technically from an income level would be considered middle-class, they made a conscious decision for us to grow up in working class neighborhoods those were the, the neighborhoods that they grew up in. Well, and as a, as a, as a kid, 
I was very intellectually curious. I was, I was skinny. I had glasses. I had, because conversation was always a big thing in my family. And, and again, both of my parents were university educated. I had certainly a, not a typical vocabulary for, for a young child. And that, that very much so made me a target growing up in, in neighborhoods like that. And, you know, resulted in me having to physically defend myself and my maleness, if you will, a lot, which was challenging and is not really who I am as a, as a person. And I think the connection into acting was, um, I certainly remember a lot as a child wishing that I was someone or something else and typically someone or something else that had more power than I did. Not in sort of a grotesque sense, but but in terms of just more control, more ability to defend defend oneself. Mm. And uh, I I would say, like I started, I got interested in acting very young. And mm. uh, I would say that that certainly contributed into um, me choosing it as a, as a career early on. Well, thank you for the vulnerability and sharing. And, and just to clarify, Chaz, I'm curious, because you grew up in a more working class area, yet you were so intellectually curious. So to me, it's just, while you say you desired more power, it sounds like you were just around a lot of people who maybe didn't understand your motives and desires and who you were at a core at your core level. And because of that, you, you never really fit in at all growing up. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? And so acting was this, maybe this shell for you to like fit into, to bring out some of these sides of yourself that you couldn't express in the reality of the world. I think that is accurate in that, um, it likely wasn't so much about, uh, power as it was about it about a desire to to fully express who I actually was um it kind of ironic I know that it would it would be done through the lens of acting and therefore playing characters and other people but if you know anything about good acting (laughs) um good acting is not is not pretending the, the best actors that you see either on stage or film, what makes their portrayals of characters so incredibly powerful is that they find who they are mm. within that character and turn the volume up on that. It's not, uh, it's a bit of a myth um, that good acting is about pretending. It's not... That's not quite the way that, that it works, at least not in my, in my experience of both being an actor as well as um, directing them later in my career. Got it. No, that makes so much sense. No, no, let me ask you this. And by the way, we'll get back to the moment, but I know we've gotten a tangent here, but I think it's a really meaty and, and meaningful tangent. When you found acting and it really led to a lot of the, your career and taking ownership of your life, when you were not acting, Right. Did you feel maybe like, did you not feel like your full self? I mean, like what, what was it like for you when you were acting versus not acting was, was wearing one being in one shell harder than the other. I'm just curious how you describe that, especially with 
the way you talked about growing up? I think in some ways I was always acting. And that was as I, as I got older and moved away from acting being the, the, the main focus of what I did to, to make a living, I admittedly had a bit of a reckoning around that in terms of taking a step back and trying to figure out who really, who I authentically was. And, uh, it's funny, like, I believe that if I, at the age that I am now being in my mid forties and I, over the years, I, I'd still act professionally every once in a while, um, where, uh, you know, a, a colleague would call me up and say, Hey, I'm going to be in, you know, Nova Scotia doing this thing. And, you know, would you play a role in it or, or whatever? But I, it, it's definitely not what I've done for a living in, in 20 years. And what's funny is I think that if I were to go back to it now, having gone on the, the personal journey, aside from being an actor that I have over the last 20 years, I think I'd be much, much, much better at it. Mm. And, it's, and it's mostly because of what I just said previously about what good acting actually is. That it's not, it's not pretending, it's not putting on a mask. It's actually allowing people in. Yeah. I, I love what you said about the best actors are the one who can really dial up, like in a sense, who they are, the character, because like you also just said, they're not wearing a mask, but they are fully formed in this shell because it's, it's so attached to who they are in a way. So interesting, Jazz. You, you probably didn't think you were going to talk about this this morning. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting to have as varied of a of a background as as I do. It I definitely haven't taken the uh, any sort of traditional path. <laughs> so beyond the personal side, acting was this means for you professionally and just coming of age as a man to take ownership of your life and make decisions and perhaps strategize and, and build a plan for your future. You know, what was the progression of, you know, after you realized acting was a way for you to take ownership, like how did you use acting in a way to evolve, you know, your trajectory in your life? You know, what, what, what are, what were some of the things that led to um, once you kind of had that kind of switch in your head of hey, I'm in control of this path of where I'm going? It mostly emerged from being just an actor. I just kind of felt like I, uh, I, I felt like I didn't have enough control. So if you think about what it is to be an actor and obviously removing from the picture, the tiny fraction of a fraction of a percentage point of individuals who are stars, you need someone else to create a story and then 
get funding for a project and then do auditions and then you would audition and then they'd choose whether or not they felt you were a good enough actor and or uh, a good match for the characters that they've chosen. So there was so little control of that. So that really led to me, you know, wanting to write my own work. And then, as I mentioned before, writing my own work led to me wanting to open up my own production company. And then after doing that for several years and, and realizing that I was actually much more interested in film and television, that led to me opening up my own production company and writing and directing and producing feature films. And, you know, even after I moved on from filmmaking as, as the core of my career uh, about 10 years ago and moved into becoming a, uh, a competitive strategist as, as I do now as a, as a consultant, um, that, that core thing still remained, which I think is that entrepreneurial mindset of not waiting for or expecting other people to create the opportunities for me that I would, I would do that for my, myself. And I think that's the main principle that I took from it all that has made, has remained consistent, uh, all the way through. Yeah, no, it seems like a very clear thread line, you know, no matter what you've done, what industry you've excelled in that entrepreneurial spirit, that ownership of, I can figure it out. You know, you've bounced in and out of different industries. seems like I've succeeded in, in all of them, but the, the frameworks, the practices, the, the way you go about the process is fairly similar. So one caveat I would throw into that though, is I have failed miserably course. In, in many of them as well. Um, but that's just how it works. I've had several companies fail. They were very costly, <laughs> uh, in terms of, in terms of failing, not only financially, but, but, but emotionally, but that was just the path that, that needed to be taken. I mean, I, uh, one, one company I had, for example, I was a co-founder and COO of was a, uh, uh an agricultural technology company. Things were going like gangbusters and, I had invested uh, not only dollars, but about five years of full-time work and my partner seven, uh, along with also doing other things to actually bring in cash, uh, bootstrapped it. And uh, our first deal that we closed was, uh, the, the total worth of it was $80 million. Wow. And it all fell apart um, about a about a year later due, due to some, um, some issues around environmental, uh, regulations, uh, where the, the product was erroneously labeled as an invasive species and there was nothing to be done. Um, we, so, so I've, uh, I mean, it's, I, I'm very, I'm very cautious about promoting any, what I frankly believe are myths around the fairy tale of entrepreneurialism. Um, we, we just far too often focus it, focus on, you know, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and people like that. And that's not to take away from their success. If anything, it's actually to build it up 
even more by saying the vast majority of large swings that you'll take as an entrepreneur, you will miss. So it's, I, I'm very cautious to talk as much about my, um, if you want to call them failures, I mean, to just bluntly, there were things that didn't work out for whatever reason, whether it was something in my control or not. I'm very cautious to make sure that I talk about those as much as I talk about the, the few things that, that did actually work out that, uh, you know, worked out financially and or propelled me further in my career. You know, it's, it's funny you, you bring this up and I think also very important that you bring it up because uh, you're right. I think we do overshadow the successes and it doesn't give light to the people or the stories that shaped you for someone who um, a question I have for you is more on the emotional toll of, of things because you talk about being a competitive strategist and I can relate a lot to just strategic thinking and maybe starting with the end in mind. And I think sometimes that it creates an attachment to perhaps outcomes and a tight grip on life or on the steering wheel. And sometimes some things happen that you trigger moments happen that you can't control and you kind of got to let go. Um, and in that process, it creates what you said, the emotional toll of failing. And so my question for you is, does that resonate with you? And then two, how did you overcome the emotional toll of such a big you know, collapse of what you just said? I talk about that a lot. I, I, teach, um, I teach strategy at a university called Dalhousie University. And um, along with you know, the, the material of learning specific, uh, the history of strategic thinking and specific tools and, and uh, strategic frameworks and so on, um, a lot of what we talk about is stuff like that around decision-making and, and, and what goes into it. I, I think that in terms of you, you just simply can't control for everything, especially the larger the organization or the larger the project uh, and the more players involved in the original decision-making around it. And then in the implementation of whatever decisions have been made, the, the number of variables gets wildly out of control. So I always emphasize the need to be um, flexible and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, that vastly over, overused word uh, pivot of determining in advance um, what indicators will indicate the fact that you need to change course so that it, obviously the reason why you do that is you don't want, you, you, you don't want to just react to everything. Like very often people will give up on something too soon, but by having those conversations in advance, you're making a certain level of, of commitment in advance about what will actually trigger a reaction from you instead of reacting to everything. In terms of the emotional toll, God, I, I honestly, I wish I had a better answer um, other than to say, I don't really have one because it's so personal and, and too often, you know, the way that individuals will respond to a question like that uh, sounds like a, uh, you know, $2 life coach with some kind of um, some quote that they read in some self-help book or something like that. I think the, the way, honestly, that you build up and maintain some resilience around 
when things just go horribly wrong, uh, sometimes which can have nothing to do with you, like, I don't know, a pandemic, <laughs> for example. I, I think the only way that you build up that resilience is by ensuring that you have other things in your life that give you a sense of meaning, purpose, joy, whatever, whatever word works for you as, as much as, you know, the, the tunnel vision entrepreneur is, is, uh, is again, a, a favorite trope. Uh, it is wickedly dangerous mm. in terms of, in terms of resilience. I, I know of an entrepreneur that just committed suicide two weeks ago because of that kind of tunnel vision of, of really it, it, it mostly being about that, that one thing. And yes, it's more complicated than that. There were, you know, some other underlying issues and, and so on, but you have to be about more than the one thing. Yeah. By the way, thanks for such a thoughtful answer, right? Because I'm probably asking you a question, that question, it, it's, there's no crystal ball answer to it. Um, so I just love the, you, know, you talked about adaptability and flexibility. Um, but what really stood out too, right, was not being so attached to one thing. And I, and I think from being an entrepreneur and attaching yourself to your work, from being an athlete and attaching yourself to your sport, to maybe an actor and attaching yourself to, you know, the character, you know, the businesses can fail, the, the, the plays can be over, the, um, you know, the sports can end, you know, and, and I think what you think you're getting on a bit a much deeper level of, you know, you can have all the strategy in the world or, you know, plan for all the things with you want, but foundationally having a, a much deeper rooted sense of joy and peace and, and, and just fulfillment from multiple areas in your life, you know, it, is so important because if, if one of those layers kind of unearths itself, you know, your confidence and your maybe self-worth might be bottled up in, in just one place versus maybe a little more spread out so you can find that self-worth and kind of who you are in multiple foundations that you've built in your life and not just one area. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of, um, <laughs> this is a little woo woo, but I, I do like to, I, I find that I, I have to do this for myself and I do have to remind myself every once in a while that um, we're all just stardust at the end of the day. <laughs> and that's, and that at, at one point or another, um, that's where that's, you know, what we're all returning to. And, um, I, I know that not only do I need more in my life, but having those other things in your life, having, being a well-rounded person, um, will also just make you better at whatever that pursuit is that you that you have completely i i don't think it's woo at all i i mean maybe only because i've gotten pretty spiritual the last six months but i to your point i think we're energetic beings and occupying physical bodies you know and you're right we do turn into stardust i do think there's we don't need to talk about afterlife and you know maybe turn heads although we could <laughs> um but i i you know, I think our time here is limited and, you know, just realizing that the, the finiteness of life 
I, I just think for the audience to know, you know, um, Chaz and I were talking before the show and we had like five different areas of overlap in our life. And I, Chaz, I mean, the more we talk, I just, the more the kindred uh, spirits, uh, <laughs> I, I just think we are, you know, it's a pretty cool connection right off the bat. Yeah, for sure. And, and actually that's, I mean, that's, that's actually another good point, Brian. And one that I think a lot of us have felt, um, a lack of during the pandemic is this idea of connection. I just connected with someone yesterday whom um, he's a, a personal friend who I haven't talked to since, God, it's probably been three years. And I just had this realization that, um, you know, things have been very, very busy for us since the, since the pandemic started, we had to do some significant, um, here's that word again, pivoting of both of our businesses. And, and, um, that was, you know, fairly overwhelming and, and, uh, you know, some big changes were happening on the personal front for me as well. But I, I kind of woke up like a few weeks ago and realized, my God, there, there are these, these individuals that mean a lot to me that I haven't talked to in a while because I've been so just buried. And, um, and so I, I just cut that out and I started reaching out to, uh, just a bunch of people I used to know there, there's no agenda to it other than wanting, desiring connection. And, uh, I reached out to, uh, a bunch of my classmates from, from business school. I went, I went back to school, um, in my late thirties to do an executive MBA at, uh, um, the Kellogg school of management and the, uh, Trulick school of business. And, uh, I reached out to a bunch of my classmates and reconnected with them and had some awesome chats. I, I reached out to some, uh, just some friends. I reached out to people that were just in my business network when I was a, when I was a filmmaker, um, that I really liked and hadn't talked to in a while. And I can't tell you how much that has helped in terms of, in terms of making me feel connected again, instead of just constantly going down the rabbit hole of, uh, news stories about anti-vaxxers. Um, so, uh, so that, that's a big part of it as well. That's, that's how we, we maintain some resilience is also by maintaining our, uh, connections as well as building new ones, which is what you and I are doing in this conversation. Totally. I think you're really speaking to as well, this element of shared humanity and what I've learned maybe similar to you is to check in on people more regularly that you don't always think to check in on. And, and by just checking in and kind of seeing how people are doing, it opens up just such a beautiful, serendipitous, spontaneous type of interaction. And um, I think for you, you know, it seems like by, by reconnecting with people, it's just brought this like new sense of aliveness to you, especially through the pandemic as of, as of recent, especially. Well, and no matter what we do for business, right. Or, uh, for, for, uh, I should actually say no matter what we do for a living, cause, uh, 
it's not always business. Um, you know, you may work in government, you may uh, work in nonprofit, you may be an artist. So uh, whatever it is you do to sustain your financial needs, <laughs> um, for work, uh, in one way or another, it, it does also just always come back to some sort of human need. And when I look at organizations that have really lost their way, it feels like oftentimes it's because they lost their humanity. And I think we're, we're all well served to just, no matter what it is we do, to always maintain those, those human connections in our own lives. I mean, if you think back, there was a, a really wonderful documentary that was done by some Canadian filmmakers uh, a few years ago, and they just released a, a follow-up, which um, uh, admittedly wasn't as powerful, but the, but the first one certainly was called uh, The Corporation. And they essentially made the argument that the typical corporation, if we were to put a, if we were to do a psychological or personality assessment on it, would be deemed to be a psychopath, mm. uh, which is very obviously disturbing. Um, but again, it goes back to just losing, losing sight of other humans <laughs> within our, uh, our working lives. I have no idea how I got on that tangent. <laughs> no, I mean, all this stuff is just, it's, it's so, it's so important. And I, I just love how we can speak to, I mean, I just so resonate with the companies who are kind of losing their way or losing a sense of humanity and the lack of connection and COVID and how that's, companies are evolving and adapting. And, you know, I think going back to just like the thread line of the story of, of taking ownership, you know, part of that taking ownership is the awareness of what's going on around you and figuring out the, the meaningful change that you want to make. And, you know, just what's coming through in this conversation, you know, what I think I respect a lot about you, Chaz, is just the awareness and maybe the perhaps the intentionality and the way you, you the way you live and lead your life, which, I think a lot of people can learn from um, to live more intentional lives or think long-term about who they are and where they want to go, because, you know, I think that's, that's a, puts you on a path to living a much more meaningful and intentional life. So, I mean, it just sounds like the, those values are so core to who you are. These have been sort of like hard won lessons that, that have emerged from very frequently going in the wrong direction. Um, yeah. you know, not being in, in alignment with my values. Notice that I say values, not beliefs. Values are likely firm. Beliefs should be flexible. Mm. Um, this is, I, I really, I am a huge believer in continuous learning and to constantly be challenging how and what we think. And uh, Adam Grant's, latest book um, sort of m displaced uh, Susan Cain's Quiet as my favorite book. Um, so Adam Grant's new book, Think Again, really challenges our, our thinking and, and, and um, particularly um, challenges how he, he suggests that we, we don't hold 
tightly to beliefs, we can hold tightly to values. So for example, you could, uh, um, sorry, you could have a value that we should, we should help those less fortunate than us. And then you could have a belief that the best way to do that would be through uh, rent control, right? But if you're presented with evidence that shows that actually rent control is not helpful at doing that or is not the best way to do that, then you should be flexible in that belief instead of holding on to it and being pigheaded about it um, because there's a there's potentially a better way to live that value of supporting those that are less fortunate. So that would be a bit, bit of an example. Yeah. And, um, I, I honestly can't recommend that book highly enough. It was so good. Yeah. I can't recommend it more either. He's a uh, quite the thinker and writer and speaker and, uh, a lot of universal lessons Adam shares, um, no doubt. And, just to clear just to bring back your point home one more time, flexible in beliefs, but firm in values. I, I could not agree more. And I think that's a great place to to wrap here, Chaz. You know, I, I really appreciate your time today, showing up how you did, diving into your past a little bit with me and you know, letting people see, you know, taking ownership of your life comes in a lot of different forms and the needs you need to be flexible. Uh, in nature and in your beliefs of how to get there. But again, firm in the values. So the beautiful, beautiful conversation. I, I, yeah, I just really special, you know, some of these go awesome. Some go really awesome. And this was really, <laughs> this was really awesome. So thanks again for uh, your time and presence and uh, wh- where can people find you to reach out if they're inspired? Uh, so in terms of my, um, the, the core of my work around strategic planning, you can find me at onepageplans.ca. Awesome. Well, we'll send people there and uh, to you and uh, such a great conversation. Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.